This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Not, Series 5, Episode 10, The Future of John Elkington. Um, <laughs> can we call it that? Is that all right? I'm sure John would be very, very delighted with that. John Elkington special. But let's discuss, first of all, the future of Edgar Gillespie and Mark Stevenson. It's Lurgy Week, isn't it? This this touch of the Curse of the Future Notes podcast here. We've had ill guests in the last two weeks, and now we have an ill host. How are you, Mark? Uh, well, I'm much better than I was two days ago, where I, I slept for 18 hours solid, being laid low with some bizarre combination of my face being felt like it was in a vice, runny nose, a hacking cough, a credible headache, and a general feeling of, I'll never imagine that I could ever be well again. Mm. But it's quite good for the ADHD brain, actually, to get ill, because it forces you to do nothing. So mm. basically, I had to just sort of lie there. And of course, illness is a key part of phasing towards healthiness. So we mustn't eliminate illness altogether. That's right. We must embrace illness as part of understanding what a healthy society might look like in the future. Oh, that is a brilliant optimistic spin on it there, Don. I'm impressed. (laughs) Well, I'm taking my lessons from COP and I understand that we mustn't phase out bad things altogether too quickly because that will be bad. So what we must do is do bad things for a bit and then, you know, that gives us time to talk about a better future. Oh, well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, especially with John, John in the middle. <laughs> yeah. It's slightly more nuanced to it than that, but we will get to it, I think. I can't wait. Ed, illness in your house as well? Yeah, I spent last night clearing up projectile vomit from the landing hallway where my Well, poor, you shouldn't drink so much. I mm. know, my poor wee girl. My poor wee girl was sick again last night, so... I don't know whether it's another batch of Noro or just an upset tummy from the fish and chips as she gorged herself on last night, but that was <laughs> a disturbing night, which wasn't quite as disturbing as the dream I had the night before, which was one of those, I ate some blue cheese before I went to bed. Oh, lovely. I'd forgotten how weird your fever dreams can get on blue cheese. And someone was actually telling me that blue cheese, like as it's broken down in your gut, can create a similar effect to DMT. You know, dimethyltryptamine, which is supposed to be the very intense psychedelic that helps you see God. It's what's in ayahuasca and everything. Wow. 
you know, I've always wondered why my beloved loved blue cheese. <laughs> yeah, wow. It was wild. I mean, basically, I was on an Arctic expedition to Svalbard or the North Pole or somewhere, specifically to get my teeth fixed by a polar bear dentist. <laughs> and, everyone, and everyone was telling me that this was a really bad idea. And in the dream, I was going, no, 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 but he's really very good. <laughs> And then I sort of woke up at the moment this huge bear was over me, about to stick his claw into my mouth to do some to do some artful dentistry. And I woke up going, whoa, that was intense. So Philip Pullman, eat your heart out. You know, Yorick Bernison is my dentist. <laughs> the bear, was it cartoonish? Was it actually, was it a real bear? It was a real polar bear. It was like, it was very much a planet Earth. This is breathing. It's, I've just eaten a seal breath into my face. Wow. As it's doing it. It was vivid. What do you think? That says. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. That's what several people have said. It's like, what would be the Jungian analysis of this, Ed? I have no mm. idea. Mm. It sounds a superb dream, though. It's vivid. I think it's your subconscious thinking about cop. <laughs> why? I'll tell you why. Because what it's basically saying is we've come to the conclusion now that whatever you're going to do is going to have to be painful. Okay. And actually, the planet is now telling us you've left it too late. So we're going to have to do this thing now. And the polar bear is climate change and you as an environmentalist despite all your best efforts to keep your teeth clean have come to the point along with the rest of us that we have to fundamentally change society which means you have to give up things and this is you giving up things as a metaphor for what society has to do the polar bear is is the planet and climate change you are an environmentalist stuck in the inevitable systems that keep us coming back to these places i thought you didn't like woo woo stuff that was very good in terms of a jungian analysis I would have hoped that, you know, polar bear dentistry without anaesthetic wasn't on the list of things I had to go through. No, no, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Ed's coming around for Christmas. It's going to be a very long few days. <laughs> Are you having Christmas together? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. He's going to wake up screaming every night going, no, no, keep the dream away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. I used to sleepwalk as a child as well, so I'm looking forward to that in your house. Mm. Anyway. What better opportunity? given the news that you'll be spending Christmas together, then to plug next week's episode, which will be our end-of-year review stroke slash Christmas special. So if you have any Christmas-relevant information you want to share or any questions you'd like answered, get those in. Thank you for your feedback on recent episodes. Jez says, a quick search, and yes, you can, non-Cavendish bananas in the UK. This off the back of our Future of Bananas special. There's a website called exoticfruits.co.uk. Calling all banana lovers. (laughs) At least four different types of banana. I haven't checked the eco-credentials of exoticfruits.co.uk. So it might be that the good that you're doing by helping to diversify the banana community is undone by the fact that they've got 400 jumbo jets in the air flying blueberries to every corner of the earth. (laughs) But if you heard that episode and you want to try some bananas, then you can get Matoki bananas, Namwa bananas, red bananas, apple bananas, and others. That's exciting. I might get one of them. That is exciting. I actually saw a red banana plant, actually, as well. You know, when you you talk about these things, and then obviously your confirmation bias brings your attention to them. That's not true. I've I've seen a bunch of red bananas. Things, you know, I think she was lying. They're everywhere. It's just we don't notice them. And then as soon as you Ah. notice, you know, there's nothing wrong with bananas. They're everywhere. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of them now. If if your listeners want to picture them, it's like a banana, but it's red. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best way I could describe it. That's poetic, John. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really working on my uh, image of me a metaphor. I'm trying to get a book deal next year. 
How are you? What about? <laughs> what do red bananas look like? A guide. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to Kev Haggis for our most recent uh, online review. Is that his real name? I don't think so. Because <laughs> if it is, congratulations. I mean, that is fantastic. Who says, what could be better than learning whilst laughing? I don't know, so I'll just stick with this because I seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> Smiley face emoji, thumbs up. Beautiful. That's nice, isn't it? That's lovely. Mm. Was, he, was that a review for our podcast, though? Oh, I, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't clicked on all the others. The people that like this show are very kind about it. The reviews are lovely online. But surely, by definition, the people who like it are kind about it. It's people who don't like it we should be paying attention to, surely. Oh, I don't know. You've, you've got to indulge in a hate watch every now and again. Do you not watch or listen to things just for the specific aim of hating them? Is that just me? Yeah. I mean, you don't really have to do because you just have to turn on the news. Yeah, true enough. So I think we're about to be joined by our special guest this week, Mr. John Elkington. So this conversation has to happen quite quickly, but I know somebody on the podcast who's very good at doing things slightly quicker than they should. So <laughs> our listeners will be keen to know how your speed awareness course went, Ed, and, and are you better as a person now? Oh, I think so, definitely. It, it was a bit like the League of Gentlemen, you know, those sort of job seekers character. Yes, Pauline Spence. Yeah, the person hosting the course is the only person who's allowed to make a joke. And actually, because they've got a captive audience of people who are legally there under obligation and have to really behave themselves, it allows them to inflict all their humour on you. And then there was one guy in the course who tried to crack a joke and got absolutely slammed for it by the, by the host. And of course, it's not a laughing matter. And who is this one guy, Ed? Who, who's this one guy? Well, it turned out he was an estate agent. Definitely not you? Okay, definitely not you. Come on, John. When has Ed ever made a joke? <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, no, but it was... I actually found it really quite powerful. Oh, God, a speeding estate agent. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the guy's perfectly nice, but an estate agent on a speed awareness course is... Ooh, I could draw you a picture of him now. I know. Mm. And, you know, in, in a way, unless you've done your advanced driver training, I mean, I haven't sat down in a kind of instruction session on my driving since I was 17. So, you know, that's... 35 years ago in a way getting refreshed and learning actually the massive difference i mean mark you were saying last time slightly frustratingly that you got done for doing 23 and a 20 but i think one thing the the course really rams home is that every mile an hour makes a massive difference to whether you're likely to kill someone and so you know we go oh i was only doing 35 and a 30 but that makes you twice as likely to kill someone if you hit them mm. so it does matter so bear that in mind if you see an estate agent crossing the road <laughs> <laughs> well how positive <laughs> that was obviously that was a joke i do not you know oh fuck off i can't speak it's all right you can't apologize you made the joke perfectly well you're perfectly erudite when you're slagging people off <laughs> the cough receded and everything. Uh, you know, I do not, I do not, what's the word I'm looking for? You don't want people to run over estate agents. You know, I was, I'm trying to say I do not admonish violence, but that's not the word, is it? I do not. Espouse? Condone. Condone. That's the word. Why can't I think of that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if only we had a guest lined up who is not only an expert in the field, but also very erudite. <laughs> if only. Should we introduce John? Yes. Let's do that. 
So, how to introduce Mr. John Elkington? Um, I've had the honour of doing this on a few occasions, most recently during an Earth Systems Predictability Forum on Artificial Intelligence and its potential in climate and biodiversity action, where I introduced John alongside Dr. Lorian Pratt, who is the godmother of decision intelligence. So we introduced John as the godfather of sustainability, but not, I hasten to add, in a sort of Martin Scorsese sense, as some <laughs> dour Don Corleone Brando-like figure ruling over an unruly crime family of conflicted loyalties with fear and violence, John is very much more the kind and wise paternal force that is always full of generous wisdom and insight and devoid of bed-based horse heads. I first met John while doing my master's degree in sustainability way back in 1997, when he just published his book Cannibals with Forks. John, as we will probably discuss, has written at least 20 books in total, including famously The Green Consumer Guide, One for Us, which is The Power of Unreasonable People, and Green Swans in the last couple of years. He co-founded the agency Sustainability, founded Valans, and sits on around 20 different boards and advisory boards. He's credited with coming up with all sorts of ubiquitously familiar terms in our work and world, like environmental excellence, green growth, the green consumer, the triple bottom line, and people, planet, and profit. He's listed in Who's Who as someone who likes playing with ideas, thinking around corners, having conversations with unreasonable people, which is hopefully why he's here, (laughs) reading an alpine range of books, and risking life and limb as a London cyclist. He likes to write at all hours of the day or night, is into pre-1944 aircraft, New World Wines, 20th century popular music, and Johann Strauss II. John is a Renaissance man. He's got awards, gongs, and recognitions galore. He's been a trusted and consistent voice in our field for decades, long before such causes were popular or fashionable. I think he probably wrote his first book before you were born, John. Excellent. Uh, (laughs) So a hugely warm and appreciative welcome to the show, Mr. John Elkington. (laughs) Thank you, Ed. Uh, That was worth getting out of bed for. (laughs) Can I just add a couple of reflections on? Because I just also wanted, just for my own pleasure, really, and so that it's on record to just say what an inspiration and brilliant man. John has been like when you suddenly became aware of the climate and you started campaigning about it there were very few people 20 years ago that you could really think of as like stalwarts or foundations and John has always been one of those and has been consistently foundationally brilliant and calm despite all the winds and turmoils that have come and it's like he's just a very benign presence doing incredibly deep great work if there's the nearest thing to a budder or a god in sustainability it's probably John Elkington and I am delighted he's with us. Mark, thank you. I think we probably ought to stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Now we can dismantle your reputation. (laughs) Yeah, otherwise we're going to end up in private eyes, order of the brown nose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, you've sweetened me up. Now what's next? (laughs) Well, John, you're relatively fresh, if that's the right word to describe, coming back from 50 degree heat in the Middle East. You're relatively recently back from COP. How is it for you? Well, it was more like 30 degrees, and, and it's a part of the world that I absolutely adore. And a few weeks prior to that, I, uh, my wife and I spent two weeks in Jordan, which both of us were profoundly moved by. I mean, I, with Gaza raging in the background. So it, it, it's a turbulent region, and it's a turbulent time for our world. It, it, it's, a, it's a period of massive uh, and I believe continuing disruption. Mm. COP28 was, I mean, I've always had antibodies to the COP events. I, I went to the first one in, well, it was the first one for me uh, in Glasgow, which was 26, I think. So this is only my second. And the one thing I really enjoyed beyond measure was 
meeting so many people, both known and unknown, in, in, in such a concentrated uh, period of time. Because it's, it, it's quite a, the expo site and, and Dubai is a, is, is a pretty sprawling one. And, and so you had to walk a lot, although you had uh, electric scooters and trolley buses and so on going back and forth. But just constantly meeting people and plunging into all sorts of conversations and and I really really enjoyed that it was the odd thing was that as we flew in I, I was um, saying to a, 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 a colleague that I, I really felt oddly optimistic uh, about uh, this cop and and it was partly you know Sultan Ahmed al-Jaber who, who is a, a very peculiar creature but he had the the, the, the history of being the founding CEO at Mazda City, which we also visited on this trip. And a lot of people have been profoundly disappointed by the outcome. I actually think in the big picture, it's a huge advance. I think getting fossil fuels into the language of these agreements has been bitterly resisted by the fossil fuels industry for a very long time. And now it's in. And I think it's it just finally, I think that every so often, with if you think about a piece of fabric or material, you get a slight crack, a small tear, and then over time, and 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 sometimes you know in a spectacularly short period of time, that split, that tear can open up profoundly. And I think that's that's where we are, and it's up to us to make sure that the you know the paradigm does shift. The fossil fuels uh, industry are progressively driven out of the picture, but we've got to think about this much more seriously than we have to date because it, it, it it's the biggest change certainly in my lifetime and i don't think we plan for it but it like bit like brexit back to you too because <laughs> it's sort of mad that it's taken this long to get that terminology into the agreement isn't it i mean the very fact that you know it, it's ridiculous that it's taken decades to even actually have the wording specifically around fossil it's fuels in there. but yeah yeah but as you say, at least it begins to draw the line in the sand, uh, pun intended. But obviously, it's also not enough, is it? I mean, that's the question. And I think, you know, we've we've discussed this many times on the podcast. Um, yeah. I think it was Vinnie Gupta who said, you know, there are some industries that um, will need to be phased out and then some will need to be done forcefully. And I, I suspect yeah. that that's going to be the case with fossil fuels. It's not going to be done voluntarily. It is going to have to be done through compulsion. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's often uh, struck me is the similarities, in a way, between an earlier energy economy based on slavery and mm -hmm. how our own country, the United Kingdom of Britain, got itself progressively out of that by spending something like 40% of revenues, government revenues, over two years to buy out, and it sounds loathsome to say it now, but the property mm -hmm. rights of slave owners. And I have a horrible feeling we're going to have to do that again, although it, it you know, pains me to say it. But uh, we, it, we can't simply shut down uh, the coal, oil, gas uh, companies and expect their shareholders to uh, lump it. There's going to, be, there's going to have to be transitional ar arrangements, which I don't see many people thinking about properly. That's one of the things, as the sort of layperson on this podcast that we discussed in series one, I think, and I'd never even entertained the idea that at some point you will have to pay oil states not to dig oil out of the ground. I wondered, John, you've said obviously it's going to be difficult and it's unpalatable, but it feels at the moment in a world where even just having a cop in an oil state has driven those on the sort of progressive side of the sort of environmental argument to just completely disengage from COP altogether and say it's a waste of time. How how do you envisage that even happening then? 
Well, firstly, um, having this event in the UAE and in Dubai was a shock to us all. And to have it now going on to Azerbaijan (laughs) just compounds (laughs) compounds that shock. Mm. But in a funny way, I think it puts this agenda right at the roiling heart of the fossil fuels economy. And if we play it right, I think that could be valuable. I should just say one thing, which is, as I said earlier on, I I have antibodies to cops. That's largely because I, I don't like large concentrations of politicians. I don't like small concentrations of them either. <laughs> I try and avoid them. But 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 here we are. And 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 the UN, although I think it is in many ways weaker than it needs to be and in some sense is failing, this is a key part that it can play. And I think its Secretary General Antonio Guterres has been spectacularly courageous in, in, in the sort of line he's been taking in public and and virtually calling the fossil fuels companies. And and we should be very careful. This isn't just about the the, the oil companies, big coal, big oil, and so on. It's, as you said, it's about the states whose entire economies are built around these Mm. resources. But I think two things are happening at the same time. I think one is that the UN... Uh, process is getting to some sort of inflection point. And it's it's driven by, uh, when I say inflection point, you know, very often exponentials build for a very, very long time out of sight. And that can be 30, 40, 50 years in some cases. I think that's what's been happening with the climate sustainability agendas. And then you get a period of time when in ridiculous short order, um, things change. Uh, to a complete what would have once seemed an impossible uh, mm-hmm. degree, and I think we're very close into that. The problem is when that happens, when that sort of thing happens, it triggers all sorts of resistance, and we see that in very dilute and weak forms currently with the anti-ESG, environment, social, and governance approaches to business and investment, anti-woke, and 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 so on. It's not that there haven't been excesses. I, I'm, I'm not personally a great supporter of. ESG. I mean, I, I, it provides some sort of service and some sort of focus, but I think it needed challenge. Hmm. I think we are at an inflection point. I think things are going to change uh, profoundly, but the problem always is that you then get the responses. And unless you're set up to deal with those, and that's why I think, you know, if people are backing off this process, saying, you know, it, it's in Dubai or the UAE, that's beyond the pale, we're not going to go. They're almost taking their hands off the steering wheel at exactly the point where we need to be guiding the process uh, more assiduously and more cleverly than Mm. perhaps we have done to date. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. 
Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. You've often said this before, John, and I've I've taken this as a, a bit of key wisdom from you. Is like it's very difficult to perceive a paradigm shift when you're in the middle of it. And it yeah. can often feel imperceptible, as you say, because of those long timescales. The question that I sit with now though is like, can we actually tell the difference between breakdown and breakthrough? when they could be sort of happening simultaneously how do we how do we get our heads around that particular sort of paradox that obviously it feels like the the ecosystem and the climate system and biodiversity is to a certain extent unraveling and at the same time that exponential momentum for change is also building how do you make sense of that sort of very difficult tension well, you're making a wild uh, assumption there, Ed, that I do make sense of it, but that, that, the <laughs> that, that I try to get my brain or bits of my brain around it is by um, thinking that breakdown and breakthrough happen simultaneously at moments like this. Mm. Very often breakdown happens faster. And I think we're beginning to see uh, some quite powerful warning signs around, you know, sort of surfaces of oceans and so on, warming mm. at a quite spectacularly unparalleled uh, rate. But I I, I wrote my first report on climate change way back in 1978, and it was for somebody who uh, called Herman Kahn, who was one of the architects of the US uh, mutually assured destruction or mad nuclear strategy. I think he's probably, probably one of the two or three most intelligent people I've ever met. He became a model for Dr. Strangelove, if you ever saw that. film, he said to me at the time, which has always stuck in my mind, and I always, I've, for, for 50 years, I've tried to duck the label environmentalist because people then think they know what you're going to say and discount 99% of it. That's changed a bit recently. But my report basically said there are four big issues coming at the world by the early years, and this was back in the 1970s, by, by the early 21st century. One of them is going to be climate change. And what he said was that the problem with you environmentalists is that you're on a motorbike and you're headed towards a chasm. And what you do is try and stamp on the brakes and steer away. And maybe what you should be doing is putting your foot flat to the floor and seeing if you can't jump uh, the chasm or canyon. And th- th- this was just after a guy called Evil Knievel had jumped a very small part of the Grand Canyon, <laughs> having broken every bone in his body. Uh, in, in, in various attempts to do things uh, like that. And at the time, I thought Khan was clinically insane. And then over time, I began to realize that the, as we allow time to go by, we're leaving ourselves less and less time to go through this sort of set of transitions, transformations, and therefore we're going to have to do it spectacularly fast. And I don't think the sustainability industry, if I can call it that, is currently configured to do that remotely. Mm. People who have done elements of that tend to be, you know, in the Silicon Valley mm-hmm. world. That's where you find the crazies, the exponential thinkers, and, and so on. John, I want to ask you a question because you've done a lot of work with business. You're very well respected in the business world as well as the sort of environmental world, which is one of your great strengths. And I've recently sort of 
sort of by accident moved into a commercial world, setting up a carbon removals accelerator with with Gabriel Walker, who with you know. And what's been interesting about that is like seeing the the, the pace and the ambition and entrepreneurship that comes with doing that kind of thing. And then just occasionally, I would not say very often, but just occasionally getting this kind of sniff of people going like, well, you can't possibly do that. That's a bit unseemly. As an environmentalist, I'm supposed to sit on the sidelines and complain about things a lot. Yeah. But actually, I would never dare touch any money or or influence whatever to, do, to change thing about it because that would be impure. And sometimes you get this strange pushback from, a, in a way, is there a bit of sustainability that's so comfortable complaining about the status quo that it really wants the status quo to stay where it is so it can carry on complaining and therefore, you know, be comfortable in what it's been used to doing? Well, I, 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 I totally understand with that um, pushback and I empathize with it in many ways. I think the great danger though now is that capitalism and, and, and markets are beginning to wake up both to the threats and to the opportunities. And when that happens, things start to happen at lightning speed and, and, and many NGOs will be completely sidelined. I really would regret that uh, as an outcome because I think one of the things that really struck me about Dubai was how micromanaged and, and tidy or tidied up the civil society world was. They were also these little booths, and it was almost like a sort of a country fair. Whereas, you know, we, we know that civil society at its best is untidy, unruly, noisy, messy, all the rest of it. That doesn't particularly fit the UA um, uh, mindset. So I think money is going to have to be made uh, for this thing to move at the sort of pace and scale that it needs to move at. I think we'll have new multi-billionaires, uh, bit like sort of Gates and Skull and um, Zuckerberg and that sort of set of people in the, in, in the past, um, you know, new economy uh, period. And, and it will lead to you know, extreme excesses. And therefore, I think the role of, of politicians and of um, regulators and so on is going to be massively important in trying to sort of... St- it, it, you know, we, you, mentioned AI earlier on, and I think that that's just a, a, a relatively small example of the sorts of ethical and governance and political challenges that we're going to face as this sort of stuff re- roars through. So while I sympathize with people who said, you know, these are not people we love, these, you know, business leaders and all the rest of it, entrepreneurs, I think we're going to have to engage with these people because that's mm. that, that they're going to shape the future much more powerfully now uh, than than the green pieces and the amnesties and people like that, who you know I I, I grew up with I, I you know I, I adore to pieces, but the problem is they're very likely to be uh, elbowed aside quite sharply in in the coming not just decades years. Listening to you just describing that, John, how do you maintain that sort of preternatural uh, calm? Because you know you've been writing this stuff since 1978. You know, I, w- I would, I think it's fair to say that on this podcast we have our occasional rant. Um, yeah. You know, Mark has used some fairly fruity and colourful language uh, yeah. over five series to describe our frustrations, but you seem to manage to have a not not a dispassion because obviously you're clearly incredibly passionate but you have this calm i mean are you chopping logs at home do you meditate do you <laughs> scream into the pillow how do you vent what must be also a sense of frustration of having worked in this for so long and actually seen relatively little change in the fact that yeah there's a big disconnect between the ambitions and aspirations we'd all know and love to see and we know are possible and the shortfall that inevitably comes so how do you maintain your your calm 
Well, I must take those um, prescriptions and, and try them mm-hmm. out, whether it's breathing into a pillow or chopping logs or chopping pillows and breathing into oh, a no, it, It's scream, <laughs> screaming into a pillow. <laughs> yeah. um, I think I was born with not a, not a preternatural uh, calm, but I mean, I, 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 it's there. It's part of the wiring. I, and, uh, but at the same time, I, I'm also... I've always said that I'm. I, I may sound like an Old Testament prophet at, uh, at times because you can just see a system collapsing before it starts to go, and and I've seen that for decades now. And I think we've left it way too late to to sort of get a, a, a properly orderly uh, transition uh, in place. But w- when you ask Ed, what what sort of gives me the, I don't know what it is the the the, the confidence to be. Mm. In some ways, a calm voice in all of this. It, 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 it's several things. One is, if you rant in a boardroom, you're thrown out of that boardroom. If you speak in a way which is gets people leaning in because they can't quite hear you, <laughs> well, I'm slightly exaggerating there. But if 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 if, if you speak lower than most people do, I, when you're you'll know this speaking in public, if if you if you lower your voice. People go quiet and start to pay attention, and so one of the things I've learned over time that it 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 actually can pay dividends to be a little bit uh, calmer than than and quieter than, than than some people might be in those circumstances. The other thing, though, and I've I've said this so often, but it's true. Um, when I was fourteen, I read uh, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, and it was the first. But it, w- it was published in 1962, I think. Which I read it in 63. And it was about how paradigm shifts go through. And it's, it, it was the first book on all of that. And it had an absolutely profound influence on me because I suddenly realized that the really big changes in civilizations, in cultures, in societies, uh, in science, um, tend to take about 70 to 80 years uh, to crank through. And they tend to accelerate in the last 10 to 15 years to an unconscionable degree. Well, I, I track back the sort of the, the, the blue planet uh, Lovelock uh, paradigm to late 50s when uh, James Lovelock was doing early work with his electron capture detector. So I think we're 60 plus years into a process. And in a way, that's the almost the historic framework that I operate Within it could be delusional. I mean, I, and, and, you know, who knows? We may just simply crash uh, this time round. But I don't know. I just I, I I feel our species tends to do its best work when it's backed into a corner. And I've often said that <laughs> here we are in the mother of all corners. How do you marry that sense of calm and a belief that that that, that voice is what is key to progress in one element with the just stop oil and the more vocal, perhaps shouty elements of uh, climate activism? Well, I think I think we need. I mean, no, look. I mean, I, you. I may seem calm at times, but but as I think, as Ed said, I I I, I hold a great deal of stress. And when I heard that even this sort of relatively feeble outcome from COP twenty eight, I was in tears because it seemed until such a late stage to be going the wrong way, which may simply have been gaming by the oil industry or whatever. But you know, to get those words into that agreement. I thought was a big step uh, forward. Now, uh, Just Stop Oil and uh, Extinction Rebellion and so on absolutely will not uh, agree with that, nor should they. Uh, and I, I, I subscribe very much to the Andreas Mann 
you know, his book, um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline Line, that when you get these major changes going through our society, there is no way that by having sort of calm, soft-spoken people talking to power, that change is going to happen. You need the absolute palpable threat of violence and the actuality of violence. And one of the things that mom, as you will remember, says is that, you know, with slavery, it wasn't polite, genteel, middle-class ladies giving up uh, sugar in their tea. It was evisceration of entire families of slave owners and the stringing up of plantation managers and so on in the Caribbean that so shocked Europe that we began to realize that this is not sustainable. If you go back to the civil rights period, mm. uh, Martin Luther King would not have had the success that he did, although it was limited, with JFK and so on, if it had not been for Malcolm X mm. uh, in the background. And it, with the suffragettes, it was only when they went around smashing windows, hundreds of windows in, in Whitehall, that people began to take them seriously. So I really admire younger people who are clearly feeling the anxiety and the way that their parents' generations are, 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 are not to anything like the same extent, beginning to take uh, direct action. The, the, the one thing I would say is do it, but be acutely aware that as you do it, you're going to trigger uh, reactions that you don't really mm-hmm. understand. So you've got to be... So shutting down subway trains or... or, or blocking motorways is not wildly clever because it just infuriates ordinary people. And what mom says is go blow up oil pipelines. Mm. Now, I'm not necessarily prescribing that no more than I would prescribe hallucinogens, but you know, there is, there is, if, if this is going to work, we need a palpable sense of fear. And just final, final point. I mean, for those of your listeners who haven't read um, Kim Stanley Robinson's mm. book, for the future, you know, there is a, I think it's about a page and a half in the middle of that book uh, where suddenly you've got a black ops group coming up mm. and they start assassinating yeah. the CEOs of oil companies and so on. And from that moment on, the arc of change uh, starts to change quite palpably. Yeah. Have you read Stephen Markley's The Deluge? Nope, I haven't. I should. No, so this is this is another. I guess it's a sort of follow-on. It's what I would call a throughtopia, but um, it has very similar kind of um, plot points as yes. Stanley Robinson, uh, and it tracks, you know, the the reality of what happens when you get this friction between society and the system, and you know, it, it's actually even more brutal in some ways than than some elements of of Kim Stanley Robinson's book. But I, I think you're right. I think the system tends to hunker down and become acutely defensive and. Mm. Uh, the 60s I had friends who joined groups like the Angry Angry Brigade one of them went to prison for 10 years and and Mm. they tried to change the system by blowing it up it doesn't work it doesn't mean that the calculated use of violence cannot uh, produce dividends it can but if if, if you simply lose your rag and and try to kill government ministers or whatever the police state comes down on you uh, like a ton of bricks so it, it's really complicated, and, and where I can, I try and support some of those younger direct action people because I think what they're doing is absolutely critically important. Mm. But I also remember the early years of um, NGOs like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, and I saw quite a number of people burn out because just their passion drove them too fast. I remember Andrew Lee's dying in, in, in Madagascar campaigning against a big sort of mining 
company just from a heart attack. And 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 I I think one of the things that we've got to do as sort of I'm not including you particularly in this, but as almost sort of a a, a, a growing group of elders, people people have been doing this for a while. We've really got to embrace and engage and, and, and nurture and support in any way we can the younger generation of activists. Mm. Mm. Well, that's why we have John on the show, John Richardson, because yes. we, Ed, <laughs> the next gen, the next the generation. Next gen, you know, we, we we feel that you know that he needs embracing and, and holding. Embracing. Yeah, <laughs> this is audio only. <laughs> when does that start, Mark? When oh. do I get my first audio hug? Oh, uh, oh I'll give you. How, how do you give an audio hug? Do you think? I give. I'm, I'm nice to you all the time. Is it prog rock? It better not be prog rock. Doug, everybody knows that prog rock will eventually save the world. It's news to me, John. This we need to sit down and have a, a chat, John Elton and me, about the role of progressive rock in saving the future. It's in. I mean, as you say, you know, these things take. 60 70 years to play out and once you've seen it at the beginning that sounds like a prog album you know yeah <laughs> so i've I, I saw the role of prog rock you know saving you know the planet universe you know, at the beginning and i'm just i'm watching it play out so i, I have that same calmness that you have i think and, and i understand that eventually the overlong guitar solo and the slightly fantastical elongated lyrical suite will eventually be the thing that saves us all well i only have one word to that which is yes but given a choice john between sort of progressive rock or poetry which would you choose poetry (laughs) we'll we'll edit a pause in just for mark's mental well-being (laughs) we'll edit some thinking (laughs) timing (laughs) ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply john so there's another thing here though so obviously you've got this incredible long view you know, because you've been looking at this for decades. What's the most egregious thing you've ever heard someone say in a meeting? You know, that moment where you're just going, oh, God, they really don't get this, do they? I mean, I, I can think of a couple, like there was a large pharmaceutical company I would work, work with years ago who we were talking about stakeholder consultation. Um, and this gentleman said, I don't think you get this. He goes, I, we decide what our stakeholder issues are. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like uh, no, it actually works the other way around. Um, right. You know, and you hear, the, you hear these things. And another one, I think, when we were working with a large consultancy on their purpose and literally the ceo turned around and said this is not a miss world competition you know we're not trying to win a a kind of ethical beauty contest and it was like wow okay you actually just said that but you know you must have heard some corkers over the years well a couple of things came to mind when 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 you asked the question ed and the first one was probably about 35 years ago working with procter and gamble and um very senior woman in the company we're having a meeting in amsterdam and she just said, I wish there was a pill which the rest of the world could swallow to uh, see the world as we see it. Uh, and we felt <laughs> she was on the, the verge of putting it into the water supply. Um, but but the, one, the one that came to, to um, mind first was um, up in Norway in Stavanger. I was speaking at a conference with 300 oil and gas people. 
it's a sort of epicenter of that Norwegian fossil fuels industry. And I was on stage and, and I was talking about the way in which Exxon, as part of ExxonMobil, had corrupted the uh, political process around climate uh, over decades. When who should walk into the back of the room but Rex Tillerson, uh, who mm. was, you know, chairman <laughs> and CEO of uh, ExxonMobil at the time. Uh, and he was very elegantly suited and coated and so on and surrounded by an entourage. And he roared from the back of the conference uh, room, that is a goddamn lie. Um, so he and I then proceeded to have um, an exchange over the heads of 300 baffled Scandinavian uh, <laughs> wow. um, fossil fuel people, um, after which I continued what I was saying, which was that ExxonMobil had corrupted the political process over decades. He came up onto the um, stage afterwards, and we, we sort of got on moderately well. I mean, he's a diplomat. He ended up as Secretary of State, didn't he? Um, but two weeks later... New York State sued ExxonMobil for corruption of the political process over decades. Um, so the, that, it's often said that the louder people shout and roar against mm -hmm. what you're saying, the more you know they're lying. He knew he was lying, and, and ExxonMobil has been progressively exposed. It knew the science, you know, 40-plus years ago, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and it, it tried to bury it. It's still mm -hmm. trying to. We're pretty much broadly where they predicted we would be, aren't we? Absolutely, spot on, as it yeah. happens. I mean, I, I think that's it, it's a slight coincidence, but the modelling was actually uh, quite clever. Hmm. You've had a, a, one might consider a, a, a very auspicious career. You know, certainly I think you can hear from the tone of us on the podcast that we, we greatly admire you. I think one of the things that I admire the most about you is your humility as well and your ability to sort of own up to either mistakes or kind of think, oh, I could have done that better or learn from stuff. What, what's been one of your biggest learning experiences or things you thought, oh, God, could have done that a bit better? Well, the first thing to say is I've never felt I've had a career. I mean, not, not in the sense that you know <laughs> what you're doing and there's a professional uh, core to it. I've often said that I feel I've stumbled backwards into one area after another, driven by what I didn't want to do as much as by, by what I did so not so much a career more careering about exactly that no yeah. actually i shall use that non-stop thank you <laughs> <laughs> i've just finished a new book which is is partly um looking back over 50 years of work and then looking into the next 15 years and basically saying mm. i think like 15 we'll see more change than the last uh, 50 but in terms of mistakes there are so many. I mean, I, I, I think of working with Ford at one stage and getting Bill Ford to go public. Uh, this is in the very early days of sport utility vehicles, SUVs. And, and um, he and I were uh, asked to do a, a, an interview for the first sustainability report. And it was, it, I think it was four or six pages, the interview in, in, in the front of the report. And this is the early part of the century. And I I just asked him questions and, and I, I got him to express what is was on his mind, which was that SUVs were unsustainable. They happened to make a huge amount of money. It was about $14,000 on every SUV and versus cents on smaller uh, Ford uh, vehicles. Uh, but when that report came out, he got absolutely pilloried um, for about two days. Uh, you know, poor little rich boy. By right-wing uh, people. And I had assumed that Ford would have put 
the whole thing, the interview through their lawyers, uh, but they hadn't, or it didn't seem that they had. Uh, so he he really got hammered, uh, and then you know it came good. And every so often, I've given, we've given advice to business leaders, which which has landed them in hotter water than I expected they had <laughs> uh, <laughs> imagined they would get into. And working with Ford and companies later, like uh, when I previously worked with Volvo, and and when Volvo were bought bought by Ford, that's when I started to work with Ford um, and Toyota and so on. Product recalls are almost everyday occurrences. So Tesla's got a call out for I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of cars to update their self-driving software. Two million. Two million, yeah. Then uh, with the, the, the triple bottom line, I mean, I came up with that in 1994, already mentioned, and uh, you know that had gone out. It, 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 we'd now say it was viral. It became part of the wider conversation. Whatever it is, over seven thousand B corporations now are chartered around that sort of thinking or, or conceptual framework. But I saw evidence of, and, and to some degree, growing evidence of the fact that people were misinterpreting the original intent of the triple bottom line, which was that it was about integrated performance against all three economic, mm. including financial, social, and environmental performance. And what we were seeing is trade-offs still. People still saying, you know, well, I, I've made a profit. That's a tick in the economic uh, uh, box. Uh, we employ people, uh, shame about the environment, or whichever way the, the equation uh, was run. So I thought, it just, it, it, I can't say I'd, I, I'm not deeply logical. I mean, I'm not an Einstein or anything like that. I, I tend to think in bursts and, and stuff tends to creep up on me and jump out of the uh, hedgerows. With this one, I just suddenly thought we should do uh, a product recall on the triple bottom line because I think it needs rethinking. And I suggested it to Harvard Business Review. They obviously leapt on it because they loved the idea. of. They said it was the first time that any management, whatever, thinker had, had uh, withdrawn their um, concept. And they, and they basically wanted me to say I was going to kill it. That was never yeah. the idea. It was It was a product recall in the sense that uh, something was out there that was being improperly understood, improperly uh, used, and we needed to reflect on that. Yeah. In terms of being improperly used, have you ever done another Pecha Kucha, John? <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, just for context here. Uh, no, exactly. I, was, I, I inflicted uh, a Pecha Kucha, which if, if people don't know what that is, it's a kind of, it's a style of presentation where you have a, a self automated presentation which is 20 slides for 20 seconds each and it was a technique it's a developed, idea. yeah developed in japan to stop japanese architects talking interminably about their work uh, so the idea is you know you your presentation will finish in six and a half minutes whether you do or not and uh, i i had an event which john very kindly came and spoke at um and it, it wasn't a great experience was it john it wasn't <laughs> I, 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 two or three points in my my life where um <laughs> Things have gone completely off the rails, and that was certainly one of them. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Did you turn up naked, and or, 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 or were you drunk? Oh, <laughs> no, I, um, I can't remember. I just did. You know, Elaine, my wife of fifty-five years, says I have well, one of my great life skills is I forget all the bad stuff very, very quickly. <laughs> um, so Ed may remember, I don't. 
I think it was more the you you were being your typical articulate and erudite self, but unfortunately, the slides were just doing their own thing in the background because they were moving on every twenty seconds. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember you saying to me afterwards, "I never want to do one of those ever again." <laughs> <laughs> on that point of twenty slides for twenty seconds, I'm aware that we shouldn't keep you forever. But to our listeners, I think, because we have listeners to this podcast who are sort of 18, 19 and at the start of their journey and are asking us questions about how to get involved and what companies they should look to work with. We've got listeners, you know, at the other end of life who find now they've got perhaps the time and space to think about these things that they haven't had before. I think the question we get asked most consistently by all of them is just how you cope over a period. And as I say, some of these have been thinking about these things for years and some for decades what what's your advice and interpretation of how to deal with the ups and downs of now 50 years of caring and being compassionate about something that matters so much well i think one of the things is befriend people um across not just one movement but across multiple Mm. movements And, and i've been extremely lucky throughout my working life to have made huge numbers of friends and and, 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 and and some of them were activists and campaigners, some of them were investors, some of them were CEOs. It, 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 it's a very mixed bag. And I think alongside having a, if you can, um, uh, it's not in everyone's control, but you no know, sort of strong family behind you. Certainly in, in, in my case, that's been uh, enormously important. But the, one thing I, right at the end of this new book, I, I, I conclude by saying is that Younger people have, uh, on a number of occasions, said to me, particularly in places like Brazil, they wish that they had been around for the glory days, the golden years of, of sustainability and the environment <laughs> and so on. And my response has been, and it remains, we haven't had them yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And they're still to come. And so in many ways, even though I'm, you know, I'm 74, I'm 75 next year, and I feel I'm only getting, just beginning to get yeah. to in this space and the next 10 to 15 years are going to be outlandishly exciting challenging and politically i think that's really true john uh, ed and i often said like you know we've been in we've been in training you know all our careers yes. for this so yeah. far and, and actually this is our olympics you know the next 10 or 15 years is like th- th- this this is what we've been in training for all the rest was kind of like you know heats and competitions and local athletics meets and you know nationals and now we're in that, now this is the olympics for the next 10 years so um, yeah i uh, absolutely it's a mixed um, bag because it's it's got sprinting elements and it's got marathon elements and it's got changing the rule of the whole game elements mm. but, but just a final point reflection in a way I, I i'm one of the baby boomers uh, for better or worse and um i see a lot of people of my age now retiring and basically saying you know we tried we were environmentalists um and now we'll hand it over to younger people. And I think that's deadly dangerous. I, th- I think this mm. needs to be a pan-generational uh, project. We need to find much better ways of engaging the young and the old. And I think one of the problems with the aging trend in our societies is that people get grayer, they get uh, more conservative, hmm. and they want their pension funds invested in safer bets at exactly the moment where we need to be uh, blowing things up and disrupting and, and and taking bigger risks. So that that sort of pan-generational dynamic, I think, is going to be immensely important. I don't think at the moment we see any politician in, in countries where I operate properly 
understanding that, let alone addressing it. So it's a challenge for us all. So the good news about that is, I think, because I think we'll have to let you go now, John, is that what you're saying to us is that um, you're not going anywhere anytime soon, which fills me, and I'm sure a lot of people listen to this with a great amount of joy, that you will still be out there doing the John thing with that <laughs> sli- slightly wry smile of yours and that deep calmness in the face of the storm. And I am personally very, very happy about that. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Ed. And thank you, John. I've enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to continuing it in different forms. Well, there we go. That That's one of my favourite shows we've done. With no offence, of course, to all the other shows we've done, which were also great. But I found that very reassuring. Why? Well, I think one of the things we've talked about a lot is the idea that everyone's in their little bubbles and there's a great clash between the Just Up Oil movement and the sort of I'm not going to do anything movement and the cop political side of it. And what I got from that was a sense of they're all doing their own thing. And actually, when you hear people like John talk very calmly about the need for all of those things and that you don't have to be defined by one, we've just all got to be doing our thing and moving forward. And there's something about hearing somebody of that generation and of that class and intellect sort of say, I'm quite glad people are going out and blowing stuff up. Don't mind a bit of that. (laughs) Really liked that. Mm, Yeah, I like that as well. The other thing I really took from that was this idea of of the product recall of an idea. Mm. You kind of think, oh, God, if only we could have done that, I don't know, with capitalism. When Adam Smith had written The Wealth of Nations, if he'd have put it out there and gone, oh, hang on a minute. Oh, we, oh, sorry, I need to put ecology in here, and also, oh yeah, sorry, it was a bit sexist. So, uh, can I just mm. uh, can can we can we have it all back, and I'll give it you back, and you know, I'm going to do a rewrite and give it you back in six. Wouldn't that have been brilliant? We would have saved so much. Hassle. Well, we're having to do the product recall now on the current version of capitalism by basically destroying the planet and rebuilding it whilst we're flying the fucking plane. Mm. I'm trying to think about what I'd recall. Oof. Which of your shows would you recall? No question whatsoever, don't happy be worry. Right. I mean, the whole thing. What was so bad about it? I just wasn't in a well state of mind, and I think that came across. I think anyone who leaves the show more worried about the performer than (laughs) they were than they arrived should get a (laughs) refund. There's a whole show about me basically having a meltdown in Swindon at two o'clock in the morning and spitting at a traffic light that had gone red when I was trying to get home. (laughs) And, you know... (laughs) I could have done with a bit of therapy rather than an Edinburgh show deadline. Mm. So to anyone who saw that show, I apologise and I recall it immediately. Excellent. See, you've done it. Yeah. Do you think you'd go back, revisit it and and put it out again? I'm sure there were good routines in there. Yeah, I'm sure there's stuff that could uh, have a better life. But I think a, a fallow year in Edinburgh. Ed, what would you recall? Well, you want me to recall my poetry books, don't you? No, no, no. This is not about me. I'm asking you genuinely. <laughs> it's interesting that you leapt to that because I think that's just something that's going on in your subconscious that you really want to say. <laughs> but this is a free space. I don't know. Actually, well, it's related to, to John as well. So I gave this big keynote speech in Bonn, the Bonn speech on global transformation. And I had a keynote and I was speaking alongside John Elkington. And John came up to me afterwards and goes, I really enjoyed that. It reminded me of Ursula K. Le Guin, <laughs> you know, yeah. the sci-fi writer. And I guess I, I would recall it because I think what I said in that speech, which was in 2015, was actually some quite naive idealism. And I stand by, you know, some of the idealism, but I think I was I was slightly naive 
in the way I pitched it to what was actually an incredible audience in the old German Parliament building, you know, where you stand. Mm. It's an incredible circular space, you know, when they re- rebuilt Parliament buildings to make them less confrontational rather than one side to the other, you know. So you stood on this blue circle in the middle and basically had people all around you. And there was another guy in the audience who came up and said, he goes, yeah, it reminded me of... Uh, of what people used to say in the 60s when they took too many hallucinogenics. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, yeah. So, I mean, you can still watch that talk online. It's a lovely talk, but I think my idealism was a little bit naive. Oh, you're very brave to not only want to recall it, but then basically put a link out so people can see it. <laughs> but I'm very pleased to report, if you want to see the show I recalled, there's not a fucking trace of that anywhere. So good luck with that. <laughs> You've destroyed it. <laughs> it's only in the very recesses of the minds of the poor bastards who saw that show. Mm. It wasn't a DVD? Absolutely not. No, no, this was, thankfully, this is pre-DVD. Oh, my God. This was, uh, yeah. I, oh, God, I had a piece of classical music playing as people walked in. It was just, you know, there were there were many signs. Many, <laughs> many signs. It's amazing how secret our lives were before this like, ubiquity of technology, wasn't it? You know, you can mm-hmm. get away with doing shows or talks without people being quoting you or recording it or sharing an embarrassing snippet years later. Mm. Absolutely. Everything is public now. Everybody's got a fucking podcast. Anyway, it'll be our Christmas special next week. (laughs) (laughs) Our email address is hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. What's our Twitter handle, Ed? At J and the F. And if you want to find like-minded people in the real world, why not type in peopleplanetpoint our official partner for JNF listeners to get together in pubs, save the planet and drink beer. I think this has been one of our best series. I think we've had some lovely shows and I think that, you know, another, I'm always mentioning the questions we get the most and they're always about how you cope and your mental well-being and things like that. And the one I never mention is the number of people who say you can't actually really be friends with the way you talk to each other. So next week, we've already said that you two will be spending Christmas together. I'll have a little glass of something on the go if it's our festive special. Yeah. I'll have a bit of uh, tofu nog or something like that. I mean, I think we are recording it at 9am on a Tuesday morning, so that's oh, going to be know quite that, a start mate. to the day. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> tofu nog. Can you make it sound any more appetizing? <laughs> <laughs> Banana blossom nog, I should probably yeah. do. As well. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, at least the brandy will help it slip down Mm. yeah absolutely i might uh be like the banana blossom curry i promised to make i might just uh, have a look at it and then decide just have a brandy instead (laughs) Mm. thank you to both of you thank you to john and thank you to everyone for listening and thank you to i don't know who should we thank at random (laughs) i'm going to thank uh johnny ball johnny ball think of a number Thank, thanks, thanks, Johnny Ball. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, again, as John Elkinson was saying, Johnny Ball famously kind of started not being that informed on climate, but yet he was really yeah. important in in helping you know me as a young child develop kind of yeah. a, a rational mindset through all of his great shows. Oh, don't say it. Has he said silly things about the planet? He has, yeah. Uh, yeah, he went a bit mad. He went a bit mad, a bit like David Bellamy did as well. But let's mm-hmm. not go there with like our childhood icons that went went crazy. <laughs> but I do remember Johnny Ball when I was I came to London as a young boy with my mum. 
Johnny Ball sat opposite us on the tube. But I didn't notice because I was engrossed in something. And <laughs> as he got off, my mum went, isn't that, that that man off the telly? And I looked up and looked straight into his eyes. And, I was, and he just gave me the broadest smile, the sort of smile that only a child's entertainer can give to a child. And it filled my heart with joy that he had smiled. And he gave me a little wave and he wandered off. And that was like one of the best moments of my young life. Oh, well, there you go. I was right to thank Johnny Ball. Yeah, but yeah, then he started so. denying the climate. So you see, he's, he, you know, then it's... <laughs> I know, but that's sort of... Maybe he knows that in some way he's inspired you to have the confidence and faith in the world to follow your own path. So he's like, well, do you know what? There wouldn't be a Mark Stevenson if I hadn't smiled at him on the tube. So I can yeah. say what I like now. I wonder how Fat Boy Slim got on with the in-laws. Mm, I always wondered about that. They're not together anymore, are they? they... No, but I think they're still friends. I can't believe we've gone from John Elkington to discussing celebrity <laughs> marriages. <laughs> no, there's a whole new podcast in this, a spin-off. John Richardson in the Future Notes Heat Special. <laughs> discuss the heat of the planet. Let's discuss Heat Magazine. Oh, I'd love to do a special with you two. I'm going to get you some questions ready. Get me some, on celebrity culture. Get you some questions oh, for next God. week on celebrity yeah. celebrity marriages. Oh, my God. Right, here we this go. This is going to reveal just how out of touch... Ed and I are. We are. Yeah. yeah, right. Stay tuned for the Christmas special to hear <laughs> the, the question you've always wanted the answer for. Just how long have Meryl Streep and Don Gummer been together? Never heard of Don Gummer, and it's 40 years. Mm. <laughs> Who else is together? Blake Lively and Ryan Reynolds. Okay. Yeah, heard of them? No, I've heard of Ryan Reynolds. I had to cancel a call with Ashton Kutcher this week because I was ill, and I just got a little email from him saying, get well soon. I thought, oh, Hollywood, Hollywood film stories just asked me to get well. It's quite nice. Yeah. There you go. There's some, that's some celeb gossip for you. Yeah, full of celeb gossip. This is going to be a hell of a show. Stay tuned. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Hey.